Welcome to Off Hours, a conversation between John Edwards and Chris Manning. We have a little bit of follow-up from last week's episode. During that show, I was talking a little bit about dark mode in apps on the iPhone X, and I mentioned TweetBot having been updated to have a black dark mode. And I was wrong. It was not TweetBot that I was thinking about. It was actually Overcast that I was thinking about. One of the nice things that Marco did with Overcast shortly after the iPhone X was released was he included his normal light mode and dark mode, which has a gray background. And it also now has a black mode in there. And I would like to say that uh, Overcast is, is the podcast app that I use. And recently, Marco Arments released a new tool for podcasters called Forecast, which we've just started using. And that's to uh, make it easier for us to generate chapter markers and add show notes and, and things like that, uh, image, uh, image art for the episode. Uh, so it's a little bit inside baseball, but if you happen to be into making podcasts, you should go and uh, check out Marco's forecast application. It is free to use. And if you're not into making podcasts, but you're into listening to them, I'd highly recommend checking out Overcast for listening to them. Mm -hmm. I definitely second that. I also have a bit of follow-up in terms of erroneous information. My recollection of at underscore insides little video demo of his vision for Control Center was a false memory. Uh, what I described was entirely fabricated. That is, that was my own desire for what I would like to see that was in effect inspired to some extent by, by what he had done. So I don't know how that how that transpired as it did, but my mind completely made up what I was describing. But I, I would still very much like to see Control Center just integrated into the, the multitasking switcher off to the, the right-hand side there. And another bit of follow-up too, uh, going back to our episode on the watchmaking schools, since we recorded that, I've chatted with a representative from Rolex and discovered from them, they are starting to roll out uh, training programs at all of their after-sales service centers around the world. Uh, so if you happen to have uh, an official Rolex service center that's being run by Rolex near where you live, and if you're interested in, in pursuing this as a career, I would touch base with them and see if, if they are already offering that or if they're about to offer that. Uh, and what it is is actually a paid apprenticeship. Uh, so you would actually be paid to learn the craft rather than having to to shell out some some money or go for free if you happen to to go to one of the free schools. So that's definitely a, a leg up that way. And the training you would get from Rolex is world class. I like to hear that that's a paid internship. There's so many companies and so many industries where unpaid internships are, are the norm. And you have to have some money to be able to do an unpaid internship. That's a You have to be in a pretty privileged position to be able to take an unpaid internship. So last episode, you teased a little something that you, you enjoy using around the shop uh, and that we would maybe dive into some other things that we each find handy. So we, I think we decided we wanted to talk a little bit about some of the critical things or the, the essential things that we have with us in, uh, in our shop on a, on a daily basis, the things we couldn't live without. And the thing I spoke about last episode was my Bose QC35 headphones. Uh, they're my noise-canceling headphones, and I, I love using those for cutting out the background noise of what's going on in the shop. They allow me to focus on what it is that I'm doing because I'm not, I'm not fighting with 
the repetitive noises from an air compressor or a lathe or a mill or whatever it happens to be that's uh, that's running. They're an essential part of what I use to keep my sanity in the shop. My Bose QC35 is absolutely essential for what I'm doing. If you're out there looking for noise-canceling headphones, don't look anywhere else. There are other companies that make noise-canceling headphones, and they all parallel in comparison to what the, the Bose ones do. In a similar vein, something I started keeping around my bench uh, in the last year is just a little Bluetooth remote for playback. So it's nice to have physical buttons I don't actually have to look at that are, are permanently affixed to my bench, where I can just skip ahead or pause or play audio or turn the volume up and down. Uh, and what I use uh, is just a really inexpensive little Bluetooth remote. It's called the iMars. I think I paid 10 or $14 for it. It's been great. It runs on a little lithium cell and has a, a two-year battery life. Uh, the only caveat I would say that I, that I have with it is uh, because it is running on, on such a low power source, uh, it's very aggressive in conserving the, the energy that it does have at its disposal. Uh, so the, the first time I press a button, uh, it's sort of to wake it, and then you have to press it a second time. It kicks in from there. But once you know that, if, if you're just playing to skip, I'm usually hitting it a few times to skip forward, or if I want the volume up or down, I'm usually hitting it a few times anyway. So I just would tack on one extra press. Um, and I can do that without taking my attention away from what I'm working on. Continue to work with one hand while, while tapping it with another. Just a, a nice upside from having to look at a screen or even just if you were to say do playback adjustments from uh, an Apple Watch or something like that. Uh, it still would require using both limbs to achieve that. So I, I appreciate just having those those tangible physical buttons right there at my disposal for that. And it's been really handy. Is this something that you tie into your iPhone? Can you, like, you can control your iPhone from that as well? Yeah, so I have like a whole cloud of Bluetooth ha action going on in the shop. When I'm working on watches. I'm, I'm using the, the visual spatial part of my brain. So I can listen to audiobooks and, and podcasts, which is the bulk of what I, I will listen to. And occasionally I'll listen to, to some music. Uh, but for the most part, I'm doing all my playback through an Amazon Echo, uh, which I can also control with my voice, which is even better than using the, the physical controls. But I, I found asking Alexa to skip over and over and over again was getting tedious sometimes. Trying to... <laughs> Tiresome. All right. Yeah, exactly. So that, that's what actually pushed me over the edge to get the iMars. It is just a quick 30-second skip forward in a podcast or skipping to the next chapter of a book or just asking to play or pause. I'll often just use the Alexa because then I don't even have to take my hands away from what I'm doing. I play to the Echo from my phone, and then I have the, the Bluetooth remote there uh, at my disposal as well. And then occasionally, uh, if I'm going to be up and about and going from room to room, I will switch over to one of the Bluetooth earbuds. And the transition between the Echo and the earbuds is actually really seamless. Once I turn an, an earbud on, audio immediately transfers over. Uh, and once I, I turn it back off, as long as I'm within range of the Echo, my phone will generally revert back to playing over the Echo. I'm really impressed with how well all these devices work together, given how unpredictable Bluetooth has been for me in the past. Feels like we're over a bit of a hump there. I mean, it's not flawless. I found the the most recent generation of Bluetooth uh, 4.1 seems to be pretty stable, and and I've had mm -hmm. relatively few problems with it. Between uh, I do the same kind of thing where I'm going between my Apple AirPods, my CarPlay, and my QC35s. So all three are Bluetooth devices, depending on what it is that I need. You know, if I'm wandering around Home Depot or 
you know, the, the grocery store, I'm not going to wear my QC35s when I'm doing that. So I use my AirPods when I'm doing that. And then when I get into the car, it just automatically picks up playing with CarPlay. And then when the car shuts off, I can go back to, to the AirPods quite easily. So I find that the current generation of, of Bluetooth is, is very stable. Mm-hmm. How about for actual tools in the shop? What, what's a, a must-have on your list? So you and I do very different kinds of work in the shop a lot of days. And one of the ways that my my work differs a great deal from yours is the potential danger to my feet when it comes to heavy things in the shop. Uh, I, I expect that the heaviest thing in, in your shop that's likely to fall over is is not very heavy. Uh, whereas I'm often carrying, you know, let's say a chuck for my lathe that weighs 40 or 50 pounds. So for me, uh, a pair of safety boots is absolutely critical. And because I'm often standing in front of a machine for long periods of time or, you know, up moving around quite a bit, carrying heavy things, having a comfortable pair of boots is critical. A few years ago, I started using the Magnum Stealth Force boots. They're actually designed as sort of a tactical boot, but they are incredibly comfortable. They've got a memory foam insert in them. They have good ankle support. And most importantly, they have a composite toe and a composite shank through the the foot. Now, a lot of people will think about using steel-toed boots or whatever in a safety context, but steel is not actually a good thing to put in a boot for a number of reasons. The first being if you're dealing with hot things, like I often am, uh, if you pour hot metal onto steel, it will transfer the heat into your foot, which isn't great. And then the other problem with steel is that when it collapses because it's been it's been crushed, it will pinch and stay in place, which means that your foot is now trapped inside of that pinched steel. Uh, whereas with composite, if it does crush, it will crack and you can actually get your foot out of the, the boot afterwards uh, without needing to cut out that, that steel toe. Uh, so unless, unless there's some specific reason why you need steel-toed boots, I always recommend composite over steel. They're lighter, they're more comfortable, and, uh, and they're much safer in a lot of cases. These Magnum boots are amazing. They do make more of a workman-type boot as well, but I found that their sort of their black tactical boots are actually a lot more comfortable. They zipper down the side so you can get in and out of them easily. They're, they still lace up, but you can get in and out of them easily because of the uh, the zipper down the side. So as a watchmaker, I imagine one of the critical tools for you is going to be tweezers. And you probably have a, a number of tweezers that you use and you probably have some favorites. What do you like in the tweezer department? Yeah, so I, I do have a good number of tweezers at my disposal, a number of, of specialty tips and whatnot. Uh, but my two go-to tweezers, the, the staple ones that I, I use the most throughout my day in the shop, would be uh, a pair of nickel Dumont tweezers, the number 12s. Um, I use those for finer work, uh, such as picking up escape wheels or, and things like that, uh, manipulating small parts. And then my second most used pair of tweezers uh, would be a pair of bronze ASCO brand tweezers, and I'll use those for handling bridges and barrels and, and larger parts like that. So those are those are my my staples. Do you primarily go back and forth between those two, or are, do you find that there are other tweezers that you have on top of that that are maybe more specialty things that you don't use very often that that maybe you do you do need sort of often enough that they're they're important. 
Yeah, so I would say those two tweezers make up probably between 60 and 80% of the operations that I would perform with a pair of tweezers. Um, I also have a pair of, of boxwood tweezers uh, that I find quite handy. I have uh, some tweezers with carbon fiber tips that I have shaped specifically for handling barrels for certain operations while I'm assembling them. Of course, very fine tweezers for hairspring work uh, and that sort of thing. I've got tweezers for pinching uh, spring clips out of place. I've got some brass tweezers that I use as well for, for different operations. Uh, occasionally, there will be something that warrants using a pair of steel tweezers. So I do have some fine, not as fine as my, my number fives, which I use for hairsprings, but some fine uh, steel tweezers uh, that I'll use for that. I've got tweezers for dirty work. I've got tweezers with ceramic tips that I'll use in conjunction with a, a laser when I'm heating something up. I mean, I could probably spend the whole episode just talking about tweezers, but my two go-tos are, are the nickel uh, ones with the finer tips and then the, the bronze ones. And I prefer the bronze over brass just because I find compared to most brass tweezers I've handled, they just hold their springiness better over time and offer the same forgiveness that, that a pair of, of brass tweezers offers. So both metals are, are soft. They won't scratch platings the way that a pair of steel tweezers would. And that softness also translates into better grip on parts like springs and, and that sort of thing. So, and that's also why I favor the, the nickel tweezers for my fine work over using steel. Now, the other thing that I spend a lot of time with uh, in my shop is measuring. Everything that I do requires some some type of measurement. And there's three different scales that I tend to work on the most. And I have a different measuring device depending on which scale it is that I'm working. Uh, so the first is the largest scale that I tend to work at. And for that, I have a six inch or 150 millimeter steel ruler from Sterrett that I love. This has very clear graduations on it. And it's uh, is very nice to work on. It's got a bit of a satin finish to it. So it doesn't reflect light uh, as much as maybe, a, you know, a lot of steel rulers would. It's it's small enough to put in my put in my pocket of my apron. And it's, uh, it's sort of the first thing that I go to when it comes to, to measuring something in terms of scale. Uh, the next thing that I use, and this is probably the one that I use the most of anything, is a set of digital calipers. And a lot of people are familiar with digital calipers. There are cheap digital calipers on the market now. If you're in Canada, you know, somewhere like Busy Bee or Princess Auto have cheap digital calipers. Uh, you can even walk into a lot of uh, home hardware stores or you know, like at Home Depot or Lowe's or something like that and find a, a cheap pair of digital calipers for, you know, 10 or $15. They claim to measure down to a thousandth of an inch, but any of those cheap calipers are going to be unable to actually resolve accurately at those, you know, at the, at the scale that they tell you that they're resolving at. Uh, so just because the display tells you that it's measuring down to a thousandth of an inch, it, it's not really doing that. I highly recommend getting a quality pair of digital calipers. You're going to spend a little bit more money. Uh, in my case, I, I definitely prefer the Mitotoyo 6-inch slash 150-millimeter digital calipers. That tends to be a good size for most of the things that I'm working on in the shop. Uh, they are excellent to work with. They are actually accurate to a thousandth of an inch. They will resolve properly to a thousandth of an inch. 
And it sounds silly, but one of the things that's probably most important with them is they don't chew through batteries quickly. One of the problems with a lot of the the cheap digital calipers is that you'll no matter whether you turn them on or you know off or not when you you're finished with them, they chew through your batteries at a crazy rate. These Mitotoyo digital calipers, they're using the same CR44 button cells that a lot of calipers are using. But I can go for a year on one of those little buttons versus, you know, maybe a week or two in a cheap pair of calipers. So it sounds silly, but you can actually save a lot of money over time just just because you're using these better quality calipers, uh, you know, and, and they don't go through batteries as quickly. Don't uh, don't cheap out on a pair of digital calipers. It's uh, it's worth owning a, a good quality set, and the Mitotoyo ones are the best ones I've come across. You'll probably spend about a hundred dollars on on a pair of them, uh, but it is a hundred dollars worth you know worthwhile spending. And if you're doing any machining, you will be using them constantly. Yeah, I've got almost as many measuring devices as I have tweezers i do see some value in keeping some of the cheap ones around for for rough work where you don't need the the high resolution so i keep a pair around for measuring crystals and things like that because a sapphire crystal and quartz crystals and whatnot they'll they can mess up a nice pair of calipers so and i don't need to resolve that down beyond a, a tenth of a, a millimeter when when i'm working with those different tools for different jobs uh, but yeah i 100 agree with you that uh it's worthwhile investing in a good quality pair uh, or because you're simply not going to get the accuracy out of a, a, a cheap pair from a local hardware store yeah i find what i what i do is i i eventually rotate my calipers out so as they get banged up and dropped and chewed up and whatnot they they sort of get migrated to less and less critical places so the the pair that sits on my desk in front of my computer where i'm you know, I'm doing CAD work and things like that. That's the sort of the oldest pair that's been beat up the most and and uh, they've been dropped a number of times and whatnot. So I, I tend to sort of migrate them, but they're definitely worth having. I, I, I can't stress this enough when I talk to people. It, they, people think that it's it's worth uh, cheaping out on, on this, but it's a tool that's so critical and you use so often. It's, it's definitely worth getting a, a good pair and treat them well. Don't do what I do. Don't throw them around and, and drop them. One other thing uh, or point I'd add on that, uh, just in terms of the variety um, out there, uh, I find value for really fine work in having the old school analog display. Uh, because even though the the dial uh, might only have gradations uh, for a hundredth of a millimeter, you can actually say you're working on a, a very small balance staff or that sort of thing. You can watch the that distance between the the hundredth of a mill mark be be taken up uh, over time as you're you're slowly burnishing down that that surface. I do agree with that. Yeah, the 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 analog calipers are are definitely have that advantage. You can read between the sort of the marks on the caliper and and do that. Read between the lines, so to speak. Yeah, re- exactly. Read between the lines. I find that I I make too many mistakes when I'm reading analog calipers. So for me, the the digital ones tend to tend to be where I go to, and because of that, I then have the next sort of 
measuring device that I rely on. And that's a digital micrometer. And so when I need to resolve better than a thousandth of an inch, uh, then I tend to go to my digital micrometer and that will read down to a tenth of a thousandth of an inch. So uh, it's, you know, it's that much more accurate than the digital caliper. The, the micrometers tend to have a, a smaller range. So the one I use goes from zero to, to one inch. You can get them in different, uh, different sizes. So from one inch to two inches uh, and so on and so on up to, I think the largest I've ever seen was a 16 inch mic, um, which gets a little ridiculous. I've, That's huge. It, it's, wow. it's massive. Yeah. But they tend to only have a one inch range that they work in or 25 millimeter range. And so the, you know, when I start doing more and more accurate work, uh, then I tend to go down to working with these digital micrometers because, again, I find the digital part works. It's easier for me to work with, and I make fewer mistakes when I'm working with a, a digital display. But these are, again, an order of magnitude more accurate than the calipers are, and that makes a big difference. I I will say if you're if you're buying a, a mic, whether it's a, a an analog one or a digital one, uh, don't store them with the carbide faces right up against each other tight uh, the carbide is very brittle and temperature changes can uh, force it to expand and crack so if you're if you've got a if you've invested in a good mic then i recommend that you store them with the the jaws open with the the, the anvils separated apart from each other i've made a habit of doing the same with my my calipers as well when i put them back in the box so what brand of digital micrometer are you using? Again, I'm a, I'm a fan of the Mitotoyos. If you're, if you're looking at them and you're looking at Starrett's as well, they're also good quality. Uh, but I, I tend to find the, the Mitotoyos are nicer to work with. I find them more consistent and, uh, and just more reliable. So I'm a, I'm a big fan of the, of the Mitotoyo gear for doing any sort of measuring. I have a few dial indicators and test indicators and things like that from Starrett and from Mitotoyo. And I, I tend to prefer the Mitotoyo ones over the uh, the Starrett ones. So another must-have for me, I really don't enjoy working with mainsprings. So having good mainspring tools makes all the difference. A lot of service centers just dispose of old mainsprings, so it doesn't don't really call for, for tools like that. And in some cases, there are models where you will not even open the barrel or, or service the barrel at all. The, the barrel is considered a, a disposable item. For instance, uh, Rolex's new 32-35, calibers um, have non-serviceable barrels that are not to be opened. Um, so that you don't have to worry about extracting a mainspring or putting a mainspring into them. And you just replace the whole barrel. Uh, Breitling's operated that way for a long time with a number of their calibers. Um, and I can name a, a handful of brands, but uh, if you're working um, on any sort of vintage pieces and even some modern pieces, handling the barrel and the mainspring uh, respectably uh, is, is important to getting good end results. Um, so just pulling a mainspring straight out of barrel, you often end up with with deformations. Taking out slowly, you'll end up carving um, metal off of the the rim of the barrel 
Um, so I have a tool that is kind of hard to come by now. Uh, it's called the ZF2000. It was developed by a Polish watchmaker named Zbigniew Filipowicz. Uh, he runs international Swiss watch laboratories down in Florida. And uh, as the name implies, he developed it around the turn of the millennium. Uh, it's actually two tools, technically. There's the, the winder and then the extractor. But the extractor is what uh, I find to be really valuable. Um, and it has a series of cutouts that are sized for different barrels. Uh, you drop the barrel into it with the, the cover open, spin it around so that it's centered inside of a, a small chamber. There's a, a hole in the center where you can pull the mainspring up in the same way that someone might if they were just ripping a mainspring out of a barrel. Uh, but it prevents any sort of deformation to the mainspring because it, it comes up against a flat surface and then very quickly expands inside of this cavity. So you've got no risk of the barrel flying off on you. You've got no risk of the tail of the mainspring flipping around and, and cutting you in the face or in the arm. It just contains all of that energy and just a very elegant, simple solution that uh, I really appreciate having. And I, I do tend to use the, the winder uh, quite a bit just because it's it's there. It's easy to use, uh, but I wouldn't say it's my, my favorite style of mainspring winder, but it, it's effective and, and does the job. Now, I know with uh, mainspring winders, they tend to be sized for different uh, sort of different scales of watches. Is this geared, I guess, towards uh, wrist watches? Is it compatible with doing work on pocket watches as well, which typically have much larger mainsprings? ZF2000 out of the box is specifically for high-grade wristwatches. So it actually has various caliber numbers that it is very precisely dialed in for. I have a nether steel plate that I've customized to accommodate other barrel sizes that I may need. So I can take the, the tool apart and swap in a different plate and use it with, with larger pocket watches, and everything is adjustable, up, apart from those fixed diameter holes that you would drop a barrel into. And while on the topic of, of barrels, another thing that I find super handy when working with barrels is just a small can of compressed air, or if you happen to have uh, a hose with compressed air wired up to your bench, uh, you can make a little uh, 3D print a little tip that you can do the same sort of thing with. Uh, but to open a barrel, if you were to just push down on the the barrel arbor, which is kind of in the tradition for centuries now, uh, rather than do that, you just put the nozzle of a source of compressed air up against the barrel and give it a little shot and the barrel cover just pops right off. So one caveat with using the can of compressed air uh, that I would say is, is not to do it if you don't intend to be cleaning the barrel very soon after. Um, so if you are in the midst of assembling a watch and realize you need to take the, the barrel back apart again, uh, just be mindful of the fact that the, the air that's coming out of these things is going through uh, an endothermic chemical reaction, so it's actually rapidly cooling down everything that's coming into contact with. Uh, so you can end up getting some condensation occurring on the mainspring, which is, is something you don't really want to have happening. So I do this for my preliminary cleaning of the watch. This is how I'll open the barrel. And uh, if I need to do it later during the assembly stage, if I, I detect a problem with the barrel, which is rare, I will then use the old school method of just very lightly pressing down. You might get a little bit of deformation in the, the lid of the barrel, but then you can 
readjust for that because uh, I adjust for the uncheck of the barrel every time I service a barrel anyway, so I always check for that. Um, so it is possible to reverse that slight deformation, but it's always better to to not have it introduced in the first place. So I do prefer using the, the compressed air technique for that. And then for closing barrels, uh, I really like using uh, a little acrylic barrel closer. Uh, I believe it was developed initially by Rolex, but you can get generic ones now. I've even got a couple 3D printable ones that I had up on Shapeways. And that's just really great for being able to, to close and, and make those minor modifications to the curvature of a barrel cover as well. Uh, but if you don't happen to have something like that kicking around, two pieces of wood with holes cut into them will do the exact same job uh, as far as closing the barrel goes. Most of the things I've talked about up until now have been primarily for the machining part of what I do. I tend to do a lot of machining work, uh, mostly building tools for the jewelry work that I do. On the jewelry side of things, I would say my favorite tool in the jewelry world has to be my new concepts jeweler saw. Now, for those of you who've been in a jeweler's shop before, or been at a jeweler's bench, you'll know sort of the standard C-frame uh, jeweler's saw that's been around for a few hundred years. Uh, they're everywhere. And the way that they typically work, if you're if you're coming from a woodworking background or if you've if you've done any woodworking, it's similar to a coping saw. Uh, but they tend to use very, as jewelers, we tend to use very, very fine jeweler's blades or saw blades in these in these saws. And the typical frame, which is sort of a C shape, you push one end up against the bench and then put the, the handle up against your chest and then you sort of lean into it and compress the frame. And then you put this fine blade in and then you release it and it puts the blade under tension. And that's the way that people have been using jeweler saws for, as I said, a few hundred years. A gentleman by the name of Lee Marshall, uh, who unfortunately passed away uh, earlier this year, uh, he was a brilliant tool designer. In fact, we talked about uh, Bonnie Dune Engineering last week with uh, Phil Poirier. Lee was the one who originally started Bonnie Dune Engineering and then uh, handed it over to, to Phil when he wanted to retire. But the retirement didn't stick quite as well as he thought it was going to. And he ended up starting New Concepts, uh, which was a, a chance for him to build some new jewelry tools. So he developed the New Concepts jeweler saw. The saw is great. It's made out of aluminum. I think they do make a, a titanium version as well if you need an ultralight version. Uh, but most of them are made out of aluminum. And they're bright red. So you, you'll see photos of people's benches and you'll see these bright red jeweler saws on them. And the way that he's designed them they're cut out to lighten up the saw a little bit, but also to strengthen them. And they're very, very rigid, which is wonderful because the, the bane of your existence if you're using a jeweler saw is a flexible frame. Once the frame starts to flex, you tend to snap your saw blades. And as I said, these saw blades are very thin and you, you'll, especially when you first start out, you'll start breaking dozens and dozens of these blades. And the stiffer your saw frame is, the better it's going to be for the blade. The longer the blade's going to last, the more accurate your sawing is going to be. And so these these frames are very, very stiff. They're, uh, they're, they're nice to work with. On top of that, he's created this quick release mechanism so that you can 
consistently put the same amount of force on your saw blade. In my case, I tend to use uh, three different sizes of saw blades on a regular basis. I use a 3 aught saw blade, a 4 aught saw blade, and a 5 aught saw blade. And that's from large to small. So the 3 aught is the largest, and then the 5 aught is the, is the smallest. Because they're thinner blades as you get down into a finer blade, they require a different amount of tension. If I put the same amount of tension on my 5-aught blade as I do on my 3-aught blade, uh, the blade would just snap. It would just explode. And so I have three different jeweler saws that are set up for each type of saw blade with this quick-release mechanism that Lee developed for the jeweler saw, for this new concept saw. It allows you to dial in that tension so that it's just right and you can repeat it every single time you put a new blade into the saw frame, which saves you so much time and hassle. Uh, these things look a little bit funky. As I said, they're bright red and they, they've got the, you know, the frame is cut out, uh, but they are light. They're comfortable to work with. They're rigid and they're very repeatable and they are worth every single penny you'll pay for them. So they're, uh, they're certainly worthwhile using if you're doing, if you're getting into making jewelry buy yourself one of these buy yourself good quality saw blades don't get cheap saw blades it's a false economy it's just not worth doing between good quality saw blades and one of these saws it will make your life so much easier sawing will go from being something that you dread to something that that you can do quickly and accurately and will will certainly improve the quality of your work quickly just because you're you're working with a good quality tool that's doing the job properly they're great beyond just jewelry work as well. My brother's a fine carpenter, and he swears by the new concepts and saws as well. Absolutely. Yeah, there's there's a... I know Lee sells a lot of those, or I should say new concepts now, sell a lot of those to woodworkers, and they're now replacing sort of the traditional coping saw because you can put the larger saw blades into them. You can put the heavier-duty saw blades for doing woodworking into them. So absolutely, if you're doing any... Any type of fine saw work, whether a coping saw or a jeweler saw is what you would have been using, get yourself one of these. They are, it, it will pay for itself just in, in the number of blades you break on in a year. It's, uh, it's, it's totally worth it. In cutting on an entirely different scale, another red tool that, that I really like uh, is my set of Ruby files. Uh, so I've got a, just a very small set of files that are made of pure ruby and uh, they have a very mild abrasive surface on them compared to typical steel file it's a really great pre-finish before doing final polishing or just needing to take a, a surface down by uh, just the fractions uh, of a millimeter before burnishing a, a pivot or just making sure you've got that nice even surface um, i find them really really handy uh, they are fragile being being a crystalline structure uh, i've only ever snapped one in all of my years using them but that is uh, a caveat there as well but the finish uh, that they provide prior to doing a, a final burnishing or a final polish is is fantastic uh, and in a similar vein to another pre-finishing item that I, I really find a lot of value in are artifacts wheels so for working on on cases or bracelets they just do a really good pre-finish treatment they'll take out nicks and, and scratches and i find they don't eat away at a metal surface the way a lot of other 
products might when, when you're trying to do this sort of work. It, it's almost like it, it burnishes the steel. You can get versions that work with gold as well, but it just sort of massages the metal into a, a nice, consistent surface that, that's just great for then running across a, a felt wheel and then a, a final polish on a cotton wheel. I would highly recommend Artifacts wheels. They're really great. And then, of course, after having done some, some polishing work and whatnot, it's really important that my hands stay nice and clean. Uh, so even a product like, say, Fast Orange that you might find in a mechanic shop or getting caked on dirt off doesn't get down into the, the really fine cracks in your fingers or like down in your fingerprints or what have you. So a product that I swear by, just a soft nail brush. It's also known as a, a surgeon's nail brush or a sensory brush. Um, it's just this very fine plastic brush, and it is, as the name implies, incredibly soft, but incredibly effective at getting down in and cleaning any sort of, of dirt uh, off your hands. Love having them around the shop. Keep them kicking around the, the house, too, after doing a little bit of work on the car or even painting. Absolutely fantastic for getting really surgically clean hands, so to speak. I also use a lot of nitrile gloves in the shop to avoid needing to clean my hands as often. When, I, when I'm working on jewelry and watches, I don't wear them because I need, you know, I need to be able to feel what's going on. And the nitrile gloves just take away that touch when I'm working. Although I do use just the little fingertip cots or whatever for when I'm doing some, some watch work, but I, I don't tend to wear complete nitrile gloves when I'm doing the really delicate stuff. But certainly when I'm doing machining work or, or anything dirty, I tend to wear nitrile gloves just to prevent the number of times or reduce the number of times that I have to wash my hands. I, I find my hands get destroyed by cleaners. I try to avoid washing them as much as possible. And certainly when you're doing a lot of machining work, they just get filthy with oils and everything else that you're, uh, that you're working with. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Nitrile gloves are out of the question. We're working on a, a polishing lathe. I use uh, little leather finger cots for that sort of thing. But unfortunately, that doesn't give your hands enough coverage to, to keep from getting a polishing compound on your hands. Uh, there are two things that I carry with me in the shop all the time. Uh, one is a little pocket flashlight. Uh, I don't tend to carry this around when I'm not in the shop, but while I'm in the shop, I carry this around quite a bit. And I use a, a high intensity light from Nightcore. The thing I love about it is that it has several different intensity modes. So you can go from one lumen to 10 lumens, to 100 lumens, to 1,000 lumens. I find that very useful when I'm in the shop because depending on how dark it is, how bright it is, what it is I'm looking for, I can easily adjust the amount of light, the intensity of light that's coming out of it. Uh, and it's bright enough that even, I live out in the country, so even in the pitch black at night, it's bright enough that I can easily see, you know, 100 meters away, and it's it's great for being outdoors in, in pitch black if I need to see something. But I can also turn it down and use it in a, you know, if it is dark and I don't want to destroy my night vision and I just need to find my way around or whatever, then it's, uh, it's very handy for that. So having a good quality uh, flashlight, an LED flashlight, this one is, is uh, I find it indispensable. I, I use it quite a bit. I had a night core as well, but actually ended up, giving it up because I wasn't a fan of the way that the button on my particular Nightcore uh, operated. Then I found it was often accidentally turned on and that high of a lumen count 
depending on what mode it was in, uh, it would very quickly deplete the battery. So I stopped carrying my Nightcore. I had the EA4, uh, which was one of their 860 lumen models. Do you happen to know offhand what model of flashlight your Nightcore is? This particular one is the P12 GT. I don't mind the button on the back of it. It It is slightly recessed. I don't mind where it's located. It is protected a little bit, but it's still relatively easy to turn on and off. And it has another mode switch towards the front of it that is in a convenient spot when you're holding it in your hand and your thumb sort of sits on top of it. Uh, sometimes it can be a bit difficult to, to feel where it is. Uh, if you're if you don't have gloves on or whatever, it's it's easy because it's it's rubber versus the rest of the the aluminum body of the flashlight. Uh, and that mode button allows you to switch between the different lumen modes and and a few other things like SOS mode and whatnot. But I find that this one this one tends to be good. I when I'm not in the shop, this tends to stay in my briefcase, and it has come in handy a few times when I've been out and around and I've needed it. For the most part, I've been I've been reasonably pleased with it. It's a bit large to carry around in your pocket all the time, though. Uh, so it, it tends to be a shop only thing when I'm uh, when I'm actually just carrying it around. That's another reason that I, I made the switch that I did as well. Is that I, I found it a bit on the bulky side. My everyday carry, as far as flashlights go, is the Superbeam Q1, which I've actually noticed kicking around your watchmaking layer, and I, I find that to just be a, a nice balance for me between the size and the output and the reliability of it. I also appreciate that you can very quickly and easily focus the beam. Um, so if I happen to have a part fall from my bench, just turn the lights out, drop down to the floor, and just leave the flashlight on its side on the floor, and you just do a quick sweep. All of a sudden, a really tiny component that you could barely make out will cast this really long shadow. That'll be 10 or 20 times the size of the object itself. It just makes it very quick to to pinpoint where a, a particular part has landed. Uh, so I'm, I'm happy with that. It's not, it's nowhere near as powerful uh, as the Nightcore, but I believe it cranks at about 120 lumens, which is sufficient for, for my purposes with it. It certainly doesn't hold a candle to the Nightcore when I'm, I'm out camping in the woods or, or something like that. Right, I, I've, as you say, there I do have one sitting on my watchmaker's bench, and it is handy for that kind of thing, trying to find parts on the floor. Uh, I I just don't find it bright enough. Uh, be, again, because I'm living out in the country, when I'm outside and it's black, especially at this time of year, you know, you'll you'll be working in the shop and and you know you're working until six o'clock at night or whatever, and you turn off the shop lights and you realize that not only is it nighttime but you're out in the middle of nowhere with no moonlight and no street lights and it is pitch black out here uh, you know not like not black enough that you can't see your hand in front of your face sometimes so it's uh i find that the uh the smaller lights tend to be a little bit too dim uh sometimes when i'm when i'm just sort of moving around or especially if i'm outside and i need to be able to see something maybe uh you know, fallen trees or, or damage to the house or whatever. I find that it just doesn't tend to be bright enough. But certainly the the smaller, uh, lower intensity lights can be extremely useful, especially as inspection lights. Again, that's the other reason why I do like the, the night core is because you can change the intensity on them. So if I'm doing inspection, if I'm sort of looking inside of a machine or something like that, you don't need a thousand lumens or sometimes you don't even need a hundred lumens blasting at the uh, 
at the inside of something. So it's uh, it's nice sometimes just to have a, a lower intensity light, but definitely a good quality LED flashlight is is worth its weight in gold if you're if you're trying to find that that tiny little part that's on the floor. Now the thing that I do carry with me just about everywhere, even outside of the shop, is a good quality pocket knife. Uh, I know a lot of people these days have gotten out of the habit of carrying pocket knives, and uh, these days the only place that I don't carry one around is typically on a on an airplane, obviously, um, and that drives me nuts not having a not having a knife around, I find it invaluable to have a good quality pocket knife that I can use for doing everything. Everything from, you know, shaving something off of a, you know, off of a part to cutting things open, cutting open packaging, uh, whatever it happens to be. And one of the things I've found over the years is having a quality pocket knife that you can open with one hand is is important. Oftentimes I have something in one hand and need to grab a knife to be able to open it or um, you know whatever it happens to be so having a knife that I can open easily with one hand is is great uh, the one that I tend to carry with me is a Benchmade 670 uh, pocket knife unfortunately this particular model isn't made anymore but there's a couple of other good quality ones out there uh, that uh, that we'll link to and I'm a huge fan of the Benchmade knives they're well made they're reasonably priced. They have excellent quality steel in the blades, so you can easily sharpen them back up to a, a razor sharp edge. And uh, yeah, it having a good quality knife in your pocket is is something that's extremely useful. And you'll you'll quickly realize how often you're reaching for a knife or you need a knife when when you've got one uh, at hand and you can you can actually grab it easily and again open it with one hand easily and lock it in place. In terms of Pocket knives, uh, there is uh, a knife I like using around the shop. It's uh, just a case-back knife for opening up uh, snapback watch cases. And the particular one I use is actually Omega branded, uh, but it's made by Victor Knox, and they are available for uh, from other watch companies as well. It's, uh, just I really appreciate the, the build quality of the blade uh, as well as the the ergonomics of the handle in the hand. I find a lot of bench knives have very slender handles and it's just not not ergonomic and doesn't give you the the leverage that you need on on really clamped down snapback cases. Of course being a pen guy I, I do tend to use a pen a lot in the shop and I tend to use my own pens in the shop. That's one of the ways that I sort of do prototype testing with my pens is that if they can survive several months in the shop with me then they then they're pretty good but a pencil is is my preferred writing instrument in in the shop especially when i'm taking quick notes or if i'm doing quick drawings or whatever uh, i i tend to use a pencil quite a bit the pencils that i've been using a lot lately are the blackwing pencils if i remember correctly this is a a reboot of an older pencil brand and the graphite in these pencils is wonderful. It leaves a nice, uh, a nice color, a nice tone on the page. They tend to be a really, really wonderful pencil to write with. And they're not the cheap, you know, Tinkonderoga yellow, you know, HB pencils that you remember as a kid. These are really good quality. Uh, I've lost a few of them to uh, to my wife now. She's a calligrapher, and she's stolen a few of them for her studio. But they're they're certainly worthwhile looking at if you if you want a good quality pencil. 
the uh, the Blackwing pencil is uh, is excellent. And then to go with that, a good quality notebook is also important. Uh, I journal about my day in the shop at the end of the day, and I tend to write down a little bit about what I was working on and the problems that I've been having. Uh, if I'm trying to figure out uh, how to work through a problem or whatever, I'll I'll write them them down in a notebook and I'll you know, do sketches and things like that in there. And I find that it's an important uh, record of what it is that I'm doing and when it is that I'm doing. Sometimes it's worthwhile being able to look back and see ideas that you had years ago or even be able to look back at some of the problems you've been having and and you may have new ideas for how to solve them. Now, in my case, I, I've, uh, I've gone through dozens and dozens of brands of notebooks. The brand that I'm using now that I absolutely love is a brand called Statology. I get them from Wonderpens in Toronto. Uh, I'm a big fan of dealing with Wonderpens. John and Liz, who run Wonderpens, are, are great people. If you're ever in the area, I highly recommend you go in and visit the shop. They're, it's a great little shop to wander around. And they also have an excellent service online for ordering online. And they've, they started carrying these Statology notebooks a few years ago. It's a brand out of Japan. One of the things that I love about it is they have very, very thin paper in them, very fine paper. It's a, a Tomoe River paper. And if you're in the, the stationary world, you'll know the name Tomoe River. They make this beautiful thin paper uh, that is remarkably durable. And the thing I love most about it is that you can use a pen on it. You can use a, a, a proper fountain pen on it. And it won't bleed through to the other side of the paper. So many cheap notebooks with, with low quality paper will bleed through quite easily. This is thin enough that you can get quite a few pages in a book without it being massively large. But the paper is durable and it's also sturdy enough. It's well-sized so that you don't have that bleed through. Uh, of your your notes onto the back side of it. Unlike a lot of daily journal books where they have a specific date on you know on each page of the book, these have a little guide at the top with the months and the days. And so you can just circle and the days of the week. And so you can just circle which month, day of the week and date it is. It, so it's an easy way for you to fill every page. If you miss a couple of days, you don't have to worry about having pages that are specific to a particular date that you can't, you know, you don't want to use now because they're dedicated to December 4th and you didn't, you know, you weren't actually writing anything on December 4th. Also, it means that if you need three or four pages for a particular day, you can use as many pages as you need to for that particular day and you just note that that's the date that those those pages go with. So it's a very easy way for you to reliably record which day it is that you're working on them. You know, not not be sort of forced to to leave pages empty because they're specific to a date. And then I believe the one I've got, and I think all of them are like this, they have a grid pattern on them. So that makes it very easy if you're doing drawings or whatever it happens to be, the grid pattern is sort of nice to be able to, you know, to work with and and use for sketching and and things like that, as well as to, you know, keep your writing in a in a neat format. Highly recommend both a good pencil, a good pen, of course, if you if you've got one. But uh, a quality notebook is is absolutely critical for regardless of what it is that you're writing with. And you'll you'll find the paper, good quality paper, makes a big difference in a notebook. 
And these statology notebooks are are some of the best that I've found so far. So the last thing I would mention is a, a good water bottle. So I find it's invaluable to stay well hydrated while, while working throughout the day. I appreciate having a water bottle that I, I find aesthetically pleasing. I really like the look of the Core One water bottle, which is the same water bottle that, that you may have spotted in, in the workshop of Tony Stark in uh, the Iron Man films. And it's, it's BPA-free, but it, it's plastic. Uh, and I'm not the biggest fan of drinking out of plastic. So if there was a glass version of that bottle, I would be all over it. I've found I've gravitated to over the years is actually uh, just reusing Voss water bottles. So Voss is an artisanal uh, water uh, from Norway. I just happened to pick one up uh, a while back and well, was using that for a long time and decided I wanted to have some some backups that I could cycle through and buy them at regular price if you're looking at a couple dollars for for a bottle uh, but really in the grand scheme of things uh, it's not much to shell out at all for a water bottle it's just a a nice smooth cylinder of water that sits there on my my bench and keeps me hydrated through the day i don't drink nearly enough when i'm in the shop and of course sometimes i have to be careful about drinking in the shop just because i've got dangerous things around mm. but if uh if i'm not working on dangerous things i tend not to drink enough and that's that's a bad thing so definitely worthwhile having a good uh, water bottle in the shop now you almost need a camelback <laughs> hermetically sealed and just lean over and take a drink i do happen to have one of those around but I, that might be a little <laughs> uncomfortable walking around the shop with a camelback on all the time yeah, and walking around uh, your shop with a backpack on is probably not the brightest idea you know don't want to be knocking anything over yeah, so John is making fun of me because my shop is very tightly packed with junk and it's difficult to walk around sometimes. And it's something I'm working on trying to fix, but it's a, it is a, a bit of a challenge right now walking around my shop and it's, it's not safe for human habitation. Both of us have mentioned listening to audiobooks and podcasts while we're, uh, while we're working. So obviously listening to a, a quality podcast like Off Hours is, is great while you're, uh, while you're in the shop and you know, there's there's some great podcasts out there, but audiobooks tend to fill a lot of my days when I'm in uh, in the shop. So even though they're not a sponsor, I I'm a huge fan of Audible, and I uh, I've had a subscription for years. I tend to listen to audiobooks quite a bit from there, and you can also often get audiobooks out of your local library as well. There's uh, tools out there for borrowing them for free from your local library, so it's worthwhile, however you go about getting them, to uh, look at look at audiobooks. They're a great way to pass the time in the shop and also to, you know, whether it's just for fun, you know, you're listening to fiction or whether you're listening to uh, something a little bit more educational, then uh, audiobooks are definitely a good way of, of filling your time. So you have a particular audiobook you, you'd recommend for the holiday season? The, the book that I've just finished listening to that I've probably enjoyed more than any other in the last few years is uh, a new book by Andy Weir. Uh, for those of you who are uh, trying to figure out where that name, you might be placing that name, uh, Andy Weir was the author of The Martian, which was a big movie a couple of years ago with uh, Matt Damon in it. And his most recent book is called Artemis. Uh, it takes place on... Uh, a moon colony and uh, probably the most enjoyable part of this book uh, the story it's is excellent and uh, you know the, the characters are fun and the and the dialogue is good but probably the most enjoyable part of this audiobook is that it was read by Rosario Dawson who really brought life to the character and uh, was just a joy to listen to as I said I listen to a lot of audiobooks 
sometimes the narrators can be a little bit stuffy and listening to Rosario read this book was a total joy. Uh, so it's, I, I highly recommend this book, even if you're not into science fiction normally, uh, it's a lot of fun and uh, she really brings a lot of life to the book. It's, uh, it's certainly worth listening to. How about you? Do you have a, a favorite book that you've read recently that, uh, that you enjoy? Yeah, it's not often that I listen to uh, a fiction, uh, but it is a nice break every, every now and then. And actually, coincidentally, when uh, I first heard the title of Andy Weir's new book, Artemis, uh, I immediately uh, thought of another book, Ready Player One, in which there's a, there's a key character named Artemis. And uh, when I read Ready Player One, I thought that her storyline would actually make for a great sequel. So I had actually thought at the time uh, that I, I first heard about Weir's new novel, that it had actually been written by... Ernie Klein and, and was it a sequel to to Ready Player One or or whatever you might call a parallel story. So not not really a sequel or a prequel, but something that's happening at the same time. Uh, because I really enjoyed listening to Ready Player One. It was just a really entertaining listen. Uh, it's narrated by Will Wheaton, uh, which actually adds an extra element of charm as he makes a cameo appearance in the novel at, at some point. Uh, and I found Ready Player One to be a, a really unique subgenre in that it combines dystopian and cyberpunk fiction with escapism and real life pop culture nostalgia in an all too plausible future. Uh, my only real complaint that I, I would have had against the book when I'd first read it was that. The, the protagonist was a, a Caucasian male, which is why I had been excited that perhaps Artemis was uh, taking the lead in, in another book. Uh, but that's not the case. And Artemis, as you have mentioned, turns out to be a, a great book in its own right. Um, does it have any sort of relation to The Martian at all? Do you know? No, it doesn't have any relation. It's not in the same world. Uh, it takes place in a, a sort of a future universe. I don't remember how far in the future, uh, but it does take place in the future. And it takes place on a uh, on a moon colony, and the primary uh, character is a woman who's on Artemis. You you're following along her sort of her tale over a short period of time, and it is it is sort of amusing the way that he deals with things like the the original landing site for the Apollo Eleven moon landing. And uh, and that because of course it's been turned into a sort of a national park on the moon. Uh, so there's a few there's a few entertaining things, a few call outs to actual science and space history. If you're if you're a bit of a space history geek, uh, so that's worthwhile. But it's just a it's a really enjoyable tale. And even as I said, even if you're not into science fiction, this isn't hardcore science fiction. And it's I think most people could if you enjoy a good story and you enjoy good characters, I think you'll enjoy listening to this. I'd say the same thing for Ready Player One. Uh, it's it's set somewhere in the not too distant future in in America, and is very much a, a virtual reality story. Elements of the real world woven in as well. Uh, but yeah, just a really entertaining read. Nice nice little break for the holidays, perhaps. Yeah, yeah. I did enjoy reading Ready Player One a number of years ago when it first came out, and also I believe uh, Steven Spielberg is doing a movie of it. I think it's coming out next year sometime. So. If you want to, if you're one of those people who likes to 
read the book before seeing the movie or read the book instead of the movie, then next year this uh, this is coming out as a movie. So it might be worthwhile reading it before you see the movie. And then the last thing that uh, that I think we want to talk about, and, and this is something that we both agree on, is, is worthwhile. And this is great if you've got a budding watchmaker in the house or someone you, you're buying for as a watchmaker or, or is interested in watchmaking. And we, I know we've mentioned this a number of times before, and I think it's made an appearance on nearly every one of our episodes so far. And that's Watchmaking by George Daniels. Uh, this is the book to get at this point if you are interested in watchmaking. You want to learn about the process and see how a master watchmaker approaches uh, designing and making his particular watches. I think there's a few downsides to the way that he handles some of the material because he is focused a lot on on making his pocket watches. Um, but regardless of that, I don't think there's a better book out there for learning watchmaking and sort of a, a holistic um, approach like that. They, they, he covers nearly every aspect of watchmaking and, and actually building a watch from scratch. And I think that's... Uh, that makes it worthwhile, and and certainly if you if you know someone who's interested in watchmaking, this is this is worthwhile getting for them, and they will enjoy reading it. Mm-hmm. And it's definitely worth picking up now while it's still in print, because the last time it went out of print, the prices quickly escalated into the the mid three figures, and, and some copies were even going in the in the four figure range. Right now, while it's still uh, at publisher's price. Or maybe you can pick it up for even less. Uh, definitely recommend picking up a, a copy. Absolutely, I, I have the second edition and the third edition, and I, I do remember when the second edition was starting to go up to ridiculous prices, and I was happy to see the third edition come out, and that it's it's a little bit more reasonable in price again. Uh, hopefully, the Daniel's estate will continue to keep it in in circulation and in print uh, because it is really the only thing out there right now that's that's equivalent there certainly are a couple of other good books out there some of the uh, some schools have put out good material and whatnot but I, I don't think there's there's anything that really matches this uh, plus it has a few interesting stories in it from Daniels himself and uh, a little bit of the the personality and charm of him in there as well in terms of how and why he designed things the way that he did Thanks for listening to Off Hours. You can find detailed show notes at offhours.show. If you'd like to keep up to date with the show, follow us on Twitter at Off Hours. John can be found on Twitter at Under the Loop, and Chris can be found on Twitter and Instagram at Silver underscore Hand.